Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real, different conversations with legendary people about business, marketing, and life. Uh, today, we have a great episode with entrepreneur uh, and an incredibly creative guy, Steve Lieberman. He's the founder and CEO of SJ Lighting. And Steve and his team uh, have had a hand in almost every nightclub and electronic music festival that has been successful in the United States for the last 10 years. As a matter of fact, uh, they've worked on more than 50 clubs and major festivals like the Electronic Daisy Carnival, Coachella, Ultra, Lollapalooza, uh, Rolling Loud, and many, many more. This is a fantastic conversation with a super creative, super open, inspiring entrepreneur that uh, I think you're going to love. Uh, you can check out the show notes and key takeaways and learn more about Steve and his team at lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. Now, NetSuite by Oracle uh, it became the, the leader in cloud ERP, the number one business system in the cloud for high growth companies. And that's because NetSuite offers you a full picture of all of your finances in one place in real time from anywhere, your phone, your desktop, etc. And so you can do business where and when you want to do business. And that's a great example of why NetSuite customers, NetSuite users grow so much faster. As a matter of fact, three times faster than the S&P 500. And you can too. And NetSuite is surprisingly cost effective. To schedule your free demo right now and receive the free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits, check out netsuite.com different. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free demo and your free growth guide today. And um, my friends at Splunk want to remind you that we are clearly living in the data age and Splunk is bringing data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Check out splunk.com slash D2E as in data to everything and learn how to turn data into doing splunk.com slash D2E. I also want to remind you that my dear friend, a guy that I've known for decades and done business with for a very long time, Mike Maples, who's a legendary venture capitalist at Floodgate Capital, has recently started a brand new podcast. And I can tell you, if you're an entrepreneur or an entrepreneurial person, uh, Mike's new podcast is going to be your favorite new podcast. It's called Starting Greatness, and it's available anywhere you get legendary podcasts. That's Starting Greatness with my dear friend, Mike Maples Jr. Now, hey-ho, let's go. You know, for me, when I'm looking at things, things that catch my attention, it's always the big pieces that leave me with something that, that has impact, right? So when you look at architecture, uh, the Washington Monument, uh, for instance, uh, is an obelisk in D.C. You go to any country throughout Europe or South America, there's a reason there's an obelisk at every circle or at every, like, national, you know, like these national monument areas. And it's just something that has a lot of impact for me. It's not overly designed and it's not overly deconstructed. And when you look at it, it leaves you with a big visual impact. 
as opposed to like all these minute little pieces, which that works sometimes for design details. But I think the overwhelming experience when you walk up to something or you're in this experience and you see something that you're like, oh my God, that's 200 foot tall, just a piece of marble. You know, to me, that's, that's impressive. So I kind of adopt that. I wouldn't say that it's a broad stroke for all of our designs, um, but it's just something that, that has always struck me as uh, something that has impact since I was, you know, old enough to make observations. So you're, uh, I mean, the way I think about you and you, you tell me, you want to make a very big impact. A, you have a very large canvas. You make there's nothing subtle and maybe there is, but you tell me, but you like to do things that are highly, highly impactful at, you know, the biggest music events in the country and in other areas as well and so forth. And so you're not doing small, subtle things generally. Well, we like to make, well, whether it's a big show or it's a little show, whether it's a hundred thousand person music festival or a 300 person intimate club show, we like impact, right? Uh, an audience is coming or a person is coming to, to a show or some sort of event, they want to be moved. They want to be stimulated. And, you know, for me as a designer, for my office and all the people that we work with, uh, I think we have similar philosophies that when an audience comes in there, we have, uh, we have their attention and we want to give them something that they're going to leave with. They're gonna, I want them to leave that show and have something specific. It doesn't need to be 10 things. It could just be one, but I want them to be able to leave with something from that show that they remember, whether it's visual, uh, oral, you know, meaning like that was something that they heard or just part of the experience that they're going to take with them and they're going to keep that forever. You know, it's interesting. There's, I was just thinking about this contrast of two shows I've seen one a while ago and one very recently. One a while ago was uh, Nine Inch Nails and the one recently was The Stones. and. Um, as a side note, by the way, on the Stones, I've never heard an arena band in my life with the quality of sound that they had. You could literally hear Mick breathe in. It was crazy, the quality of the sound. And then to get to your area of expertise, I would describe it as a lighting experience. Was it, it was so awesome. And it wasn't that it was like some shit you never saw or whatever, or whatever. There was innovative stuff, but it wasn't like new shit that blew your mind. It was just so perfectly done. And to your point, a lot like music, there was a refrain. They'd keep coming back to the tongue and they had these big panels. And there was a, the, 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 there was a strategy that seemed to feel, it felt in tune with the music. Let me say it that right. way. Right. Yes. And then well, the Nine Inch Nails guys, you know, and I get it. It was just black and white light the whole fucking show. And like a lot of strobing and look, I get it. There's a shock thing and it's the kind of music and, you know, I, I understand it. But to me, it really blew the artistic power of what you do. It was playing, they played one fucking note through the whole thing on the lighting. And so it really, right. I guess my point is it drives home for me as a layman, as a music lover, the power of the creativity and how much you bring to the show. Well, I appreciate that. And I think uh, I'm like-minded with a lot of other of my industry colleagues uh, regarding philosophies of how you deliver a show. 
Um, I actually saw, I don't know what nail show you're talking about, but I took my daughter to see Nine Inch Nails at the Palladium. I don't know, whenever it was, six months ago. And it was a great experience. And I wanted her to experience that with me because we both kind of like similar music. I mean, she likes, she's 16, so she likes some of her Indian emo stuff. I like aggressive music. She likes the aggressive music with me. So going to see Nails, you're right. It's a monochromatic show. It's an in-your-face, but it makes sense. It's fluid with the music. It's a visual representation of what the music is, right? This aggressive, edgy, you know, um, really emotional delivery. And it, and with the Stones, I would say it probably is more in line with what the initial um, the initial question or comment was from you, which is the monolithic philosophy, you know, with the, the large format screens. But like you said, they keep coming back to these visual references to deliver to the audience something that they could keep with them. Now, I didn't see the show at, you probably saw it at the Rose Bowl. Um, are you out here in LA? Stadium, right? Because I live up in Santa Cruz. Oh, got it. Right. So you saw it up north. Down here, they were at the Rose Bowl, you know, large format stadium touring. I, to be honest, the last time I saw the Stones was the Steel Wheels tour. And I wow. saw them at, uh, it was Giant Stadium back then. So I saw it there. I haven't seen them since, but obviously, you know, I follow in the trades and all the other people in our industry. I, I see pictures of the show and videos and things like that. And it's huge and it's clean. And I really like the clean features because you could probably think back on the show. You probably saw it a couple of weeks ago. There some very clear details of, of what that show was and what that delivery was and what your experience was, as opposed to just kind of like a, uh, a hodgepodge of, of multiple things where it's almost confusing as to what the, what it's supposed to mean, what the meaning of the song is or what the mean, the overall meaning of the show is. And I think you nailed it when you described nails and then you described the stones, two great examples. Hmm, interesting. So I'm curious, uh, you know, maybe take me in your in your process, Steve. You're beginning work on the next Lollapalooza or Coachella, or you tell me what or whatever example you want to use. And well, sure. T- take me through the process. Well, you know, every show is a little bit different. I I wouldn't say that there is you know a linear path from A to B, but it's there is an A to B path, and we kind of meander through it. Um, as a designer, it's not just taking out a worksheet and doing and figuring out math problems, right? So you have to kind of absorb all the information of what the show is. So, you know, some shows, the artist may be more involved with an opinion of what they want to see. Um, some shows they're less involved and they just say, just do it. You know, for instance, we did, uh, there's a DJ named Joyride that we did a show at the Palladium. Johnny, who's Joyride, was very involved. He had a very clear vision of what he wanted his show to be. We put two Lamborghini Countaches on stage on, on revolves uh, with moving video screens. And, you know, it was me and Johnny and Bunny from Rabbit in the Moon. We all designed it in a collaborative effort. You know, my office really assembled all the paperwork and the modeling and things like that. But uh, Bunny coordinated all of the performances and he and I spent a lot of time kind of detailing what the design was. And then Johnny had his vision of, of the delivery of the show. So that was one experience. And then we took it all the way to programming and showtime. Uh, and then there's other experiences, you know, like, uh, like electric Daisy carnival or some of the insomniac events we do where we're given kind of a directive, uh, a show theme 
you know, say for instance, uh, a skate psycho circus, which is our Halloween show. It's just something that's coming up next month. You know, obviously that's Halloween themed and we have a, uh, a design group that works for Insomniac that handles the theming of the show. And then we get a theme pack that gives us direction on how we are to kind of drive the design philosophies for that stage. So we, we do that, you know, then there could be other variables, you know, who is the headliner and do they get a writer package? You know, so other shows that we design like rolling loud, which is more like traditional festival experience, uh, a lot of hip hop artists from ASAP Rocky to Travis Scott to Lil Wayne, you know, it depends who's on stage. Travis Scott brings his production, you know, so the stage format for a rolling loud is going to be large format screens because that's kind of the style of a hip hop music festival, big screens, iMag. And uh, for those who don't know what iMag means, it's basically a screen where we take live cameras and we show you um, typically it's, you know, the performer, you know, head to toe, big body shot. So if you're 600 feet away, you're getting what's going on on stage. You're going to get that at a lot of arena shows. And, you know, that drives that. So the design procedures modify based on what's required. Right. And, and it depends on the scale of the show. I'm curious in a festival situation, you know, you take Lollapalooza or Coachella or whichever one you want to talk about where right. you've got many, many artists in, in, yeah. Almost all cases, multiple stages, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, to your point on headliners and no, not headliners, like a lot of the acts are like who's, I mean, I guess the the final act, I guess, is always the headliner, but there tends to be many giant bands. That's why people go because they want to see, you know, 10 of their favorite bands or, or artists, whatever it is. And so how does that work when uh, there's whoever's putting on the festival who might have ideas and opinions and, and desires and wants for, for what you do. And then of course there are the acts themselves and there's the egos of the acts and there, you know, there's the whole like, what well, I don't want those guys to have all the toys. I only use all the toys with me or I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you get into, but I'm curious in that situation where you have so many masters and of course you want to deliver an amazing experience for the attendee. How do you do that, Steve? Well, first and foremost, yeah, these are great questions because there are a lot of egos and there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. So even we just did a lot of help. Uh, Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it hinders. Um, (laughs) I'd like to think that the, uh, the promoters and basically the guys who write the checks for the show, uh, we're on the same team. And at the end of the day, uh, my contracts are 99.9% of the time with them. So my priority is to protect their best interests, right? So before, a lot of times I'm involved in the show, even before they've solidified their artist um, negotiations and contracts. So uh, when a contract goes out for an artist to perform on stage, no matter who it is, whether it's a headliner or a uh, supporting artist, uh, there's some sort of contract and writer uh, requirements. So on the bigger shows, on a festival where a stage may support, you know, 10 or more artists per day for multiple days, uh, there has to be some sort of compromise, right? To, to really deliver a good show because you don't want the headlining artists to have their production and kind of just block out everybody else. So a lot of times we really encourage that it's what's called festival production, right? Which means we're still going to deliver you a great show. Um, 
you're going to have a lot of toys to play with. You're going to have tons of lighting, tons of videos, special effects, and all the other things that go with it built in an appropriate and creative environment. Uh, something that's also with the under built with the understanding that guest LDs and guest um, video and technical people will be coming in. So there needs to be some efficiencies in design. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, so we design with those things in mind and hopefully um, the headlining artists are, are amenable to these kind of requirements and details so that then we come in, you know, they get to see the production design in advance of signing their contract, but they go, okay, this is acceptable. We can do our show like this, or we just need a floor package. We're usually cool with the floor package because we can stage it, you know, off stage, right off stage, left on a riser park. And then when, you know, if there's a change over a 20 minute, like the upgraded entertainment package, when you buy a new car or what is the floor package, Steve? A floor package. So let's say, um, uh, well, for instance, let's talk about Baja Beach Festival. We just did it in Rosarito, Mexico. It was a reggaeton show and uh, sold out 30,000 people. Really fantastic environment right on the beach in Rosarito. And uh, so the headliners were like Jay Balvin and Bad Bunny, which are two of the biggest reggaeton artists uh, that I know of right now that I don't, I'm not a, a huge reggaeton fan, so I couldn't rattle off a whole bunch of artists, but I know those names for sure. And uh, they brought in some floor package stuff. And what that means is they have some items that go on the floor, right? So it could be on a rolling riser. So let's say we built like a 16 foot by 16 foot rolling riser that's maybe one foot off the deck on wheels. Um, if there's a drum kit that goes on that, they might have some lighting. So rather than just setting the lighting up and leaving it there, maybe we set the lighting up on like a 16 foot by two foot rolling riser that's one foot high and all their lighting's plugged in and ready to go. Excuse me, um, but it's pushed off stage. And during the changeover, we basically roll it out to the points that are marked on stage with some tape and they plug it in and bam, they have their floor package that's bespoke and unique just for their show and everybody else doesn't get to use it, right? But that keeps the festival package that has the other 400 moving lights that I've designed into it for everyone. So if you want something that's unique for you, uh, we can do floor package and that's easy for us because we don't have to do any rigging in the ceiling up in the lid. And, uh, or you can do, you know, maybe some extra pyro, flames, CO2, confetti, you know, special effects. That's usually um, an easy delivery for these guys as well. So let me see if I can put it into words. So let's say I'm Jane's Addiction and I'm the last act at, the, at whatever the festival is. And I want to have a little bit something special because I'm the last act and, and so forth. Right. The simplest answer for you is a, quote, floor package, which is lighting you can bring to the floor, maybe some di different configurations, risers, whatever the case may be. And exactly. You can give it a different, <clears throat> excuse me, look so that it'll feel like a little extra special for them, but it's not going to be radically different than whoever the band before them was. Well, it's going to get, exactly. It's going to give you a look that's specific. And obviously they're going to have their own um, plot where their different performers lay out. So wherever their drummer may be and the you know, keyboards and bass player and all the different uh, musicians, wherever their positions are. So that's going to be laid out on different risers or different positions. And then you have some lighting that's maybe just to light these different areas or something like tower based if they want to do something that's a little bit more flashy and aggressive. And yes, it gives them something that's just for them while getting to use the rest of the rig. Or not use it, whatever they want to do. Whatever the case may be. Right. I'm, I'm curious, um, from an operations, <clears throat> excuse me, ex execution standpoint, 
Uh, is it your team at a festival that's executing uh, for the various bands or would a Jane's Addiction or you tell me who say our guys are going to come in um, and they're going to execute the, the lighting experience for us using your equipment? Well, I would say I am part of the team, right? So my department, I work in the production department, but um, like my office, we are production designers. Then what we'll do directly out of my office is we'll provide like a lighting director that will come in, whether it's myself or somebody else that's either directly in my office or subcontractor that we use on the regular. I have a lot of uh, seasoned touring guys um, that we hire to support these shows because I don't have enough people in my office to, to handle the amount of events that we do. Um, and they will be part of the support team. In addition to that, the stage manager that's typically hired directly by the festival or the show or whoever it may be is responsible for advancing artists. So if Jane's Addiction's coming on and then the Rolling Stones or Nine Inch Nails or Jay Balvin or Bad Bunny or whoever it may be is getting on stage, they coordinate directly with artist management to get artists their package on and off stage. And they also set all of the other production time that's required for advancing, for pre-programming, audio checks, and all of the other things that are required to really deliver, you know, a show at 100%. There's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And so, you know, the Stone Show is on my mind because I just was there. Even as a layman, you can see how extraordinarily coordinated a lot of the activities are where certain lightning effects are coming on the second they start the song. In some cases, it almost looks like they cue it. Like there's a, there's a coordination between what the artist is doing and the light show that is pretty extraordinary. And sometimes it appears that, that, that timing really matters. And, uh, you know, you got, of course you've got the set list and you, you understand what's got to happen and when the guitar solo starts and, you know, whatever it is, right. Wherever the, the, the visual, um, exclamation marks you want to leave or the tone you want to set for a certain part of a song, all that stuff needs to be deeply coordinated. Yes. Yeah, of course it does. Um, there's a couple methods to, to delivering what, what you just described, which is first of all, like as an audience member, I would assume that when you're watching a show and you hear a change in the music or some sort of, you know, uh, you know, some sort of transition from verse to chorus or to bridge or whatever portion of the song you're listening to, you anticipate a change in the whole environment. Well, those of us who work, you know, below the line in the production world and are delivering that show, we know it's coming as well. So we're all feeling the same thing. So when you're jamming to the music and you're feeling it, we're feeling it. We're not robots. Right. And that's and if anything, we maybe feel it and we're a little more hypersensitive to it and look at it a little bit more forensically than you do because we're on top of it. So, you know, depends on the type of shows. Some shows are a little bit more what we call canned, meaning like if there might be a time code track, like if the if the band really knows that they're playing 90 minutes, it's 90 minutes and it's time coded and this is what we're doing and we're delivering a song and they're sending a time track to the console. Um, some shows are programmed out to where everything is hitting where it's supposed to hit on that timing track. And then uh, the LD, VJ, technical people might have, you know, some jabs and stabs and pokes and strobes and hits and bangs and flashes and whatever that they can kind of poke on top. Um, but there might be a baseline that goes in there. You know, for me, most of my, 
our shows are what we call busking, which is live. And that the timing is here and here, right? Head and chest, right? You just feel it. You, there's, there's a natural anticipation. In electronic dance music, the timing's usually four, four at the top. So it's not yeah. like complex musical phrasing that you need to worry about. But even then, if you're doing this business, if you're, if you're on my side of the console, if you're on my side of the production, chances are um, you like music, you have some sense of timing, and you can deliver the visual portion of the show in line with the audio and the, the musical experience so that it flows. Yes. So I guess here's my big question about this, something I've been dying to really get into here, which is how much of what we see is fairly scripted between your team and the musician. You know, I'm Dave Navarro and I say, you know, when I go into the guitar solo on such and such song, I want the whole stage to go black and I want a green light on me or I don't know, whatever they are, you know, how often are we seeing something that is precision timed, that is there for a reason, either you guys created it or co-created it with the artist, whatever it is, and how much of it is what I think you were just describing, which is you guys could, we could say, hey, sorry, um, Van Halen's not going to be here, but Paul McCartney is, he's coming on in five minutes, uh, you guys figure it out, and you would flow and vibe if I could get that corny, but y- you guys would put on a lighting show that Sir Paul would be stoked with and us in the audience would have no idea that you found out five seconds ago that you're going to have to do a show for an artist you didn't even know was coming. So I guess right. well, I, understand yeah. understand this scale of coordination versus kind of improvisation. Well, you know, there's probably more coordination with an artist when you're talking about like the bands that you're mentioning, Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, Paul McCartney, that kind of stuff, because they probably have a set list and each song has a look, a color palette, a theory, right? So it's also going to be tied in, you know, nowadays, most shows, 90% of the events that you're going to go see um, are heavily driven by video content as well. So a lot of the coordination, it's not just lighting and the artist, it's lighting and video and the artist. And the lighting and video need to be deeply coordinated more than anything. So you could fuck up whatever the artist wants. Pardon my French. Probably shouldn't be cursing on your podcast. You you could curse your fucking ass off. (laughs) Okay. That was the first bomb that I dropped. I'm going to do, I'll be a little more sensitive to that. But um, if lighting and video are coordinated, everything else can, you can fake it till you make it right. You can still kind of keep the flow alive. When you start doing like obtuse looks that are maybe like, the video and the lighting don't look coordinated. Even if one of them's coordinated with the music and one's not, everything just really, everything goes to shit. Yeah. Right? So you're talking about like a Dave Navarro. I would assume if you're working for Dave Navarro and he's ta- he's sitting in front of house with you when you guys are programming the shows, he probably has something in mind during certain solos and during certain songs. And he has a color that he imagines that goes with that. So if you're programming like a rock tour or some sort of like a live band and you are the LD for that band and not just the LD for a festival for 20 bands, then you're probably going song by song and you have a list of what each song is and what color it is at a minimum. You might even have it broken down more than that to a a look for the verse, a look for the chorus, a look for the bridge, and then changes in between and you might have a page for each song and then you just change pages to the next song so i programmed rock tours i don't really do it anymore because i don't enjoy it i 
and I work mostly in the dance music world. Um, but programming rock tours, that's the way we formatted it back then is there was literally every song that we knew that they would ever play had a, had a page. So I would just hit that page and boom, the console would flip over and it would have all the looks that are specific to that song with the colors that are specific to that song. And then, you know, now in the electronic dance world, we had uh, Claude Von Stroke on a little while ago. Yeah. And uh, I love getting great, to know him. Great DJ. Fantastic, uh, talented together? guy. Yeah. Have you worked um, together? I've done, um, we don't work together like, like having a conversation like you and I, but I've done, uh, he's, been, he's performed on stages I've designed dozens and dozens of times. And I have done lights for his shows. You know, I can't count how many times. And but so I've also been doing this for 30 him? years, so. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. And so how do you think about um, festivals like that and artists like uh, Mr. Von Stroke as opposed to rock bands who are on tour like we were just talking about? Well, you know, when you do a rock show, um, the majority of the rock shows you're going to go experience and you're going to go see are what I call front-loaded. They're stage experiences. The artist gets on stage, there's stage looks, you know, there's like a theatrical element to it. You like the stage, you do very pretty looks, you know, there's going to be some wiggles. Sorry, I know the audience doesn't see me gesticulating, but you see it in the camera right now, right? It's okay, but, there's no audience, it's just you and me. <laughs> right, okay. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there's some, some movement going on there. Um, when you're doing a dance music show, especially you know, stuff that comes out of my office, we like to make the experience a little bit more immersive, almost like a hybrid between a nightclub experience and a, uh, a stage experience. So we put some more thought into creating features that are out in the house to give you that immersive stuff, because if this is not a buy a ticket, you know, buy a seat, this is standing room only, move through an event, it's a flow. So you're coming, to, it's a dance festival, right? So you're coming to dance and you're moving around. You may be talking to people. I don't want you to just have to look at the stage to get the experience. I, if you're looking to your, looking talking to a friend, you know, you're looking to the side, you're facing the other way. I want you to be in it. I want you to be immersed in it. So that's one of the major differences between a dance music show and maybe like what would be considered a traditional rock concert. So the philosophies kind of, they, they move a little bit. They shift. They, there are some similarities and there are some differences, but they shift a little bit as to how you approach it um, when you're delivering that kind of show. So there might be, you know, we still like the stage, but it's not stage driven. Remember, at the same time, the DJ, you know, while he might be jumping up and down and dancing, he, it's not a, you know, it's not eight pieces. It's not five pieces. It's not a singer running around, you know, so his interactivity with the audience is not the same as Mick Jagger on the microphone and then walking down a thrust and, you know, slapping hands with the audience and doing that kind of stuff. It's, it's not quite the same. So you have to treat By the way, it. He still moves like, like Jagger. Well, God bless him. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that you do at some of these festivals, if I understand it right, is you create experiences inside of experiences. Yes. Almost like nightclubs inside the festival. Yes. Yeah. So like, you know, it depends on the show, obviously, but um, right now I kind of consider myself the master of the parking lot. Uh, but when we do get to go inside, uh, we enjoy that a lot. So one of my um, one, one of the shows that's closest to my heart is Yuma um, at Coachella, which is uh, we've been designing that since since its inception. And that is the techno 
slash underground environment, one of the techno underground environments at Coachella. And the way it's designed is a basically a large format nightclub uh, at a festival. You come inside, we put a wood dance floor down, we put treatments on the walls with wall sconces, we put a liner in the tent so it's blacked out. And this air conditioning, we have a bar, like a decorated bar with chandeliers. And we have all sorts of details that make it feel a little bit more welcoming, a little bit more comfortable. And like you've gone to a nightclub, but it's a nightclub that holds, you know, five, 6,000 people. And we're, you know, we're driving it home. And, you know, from, from noon to midnight, noon to 1 a.m., whenever the show goes till two. Now, I'm also curious to ask you in your background, if I, if I understand your field a little bit, there are folks who do the design side of lighting. Yeah. There are folks that do the operation during the event. And yep. some folks only do one or the other. And you do both. And that there's, there's something uh, somewhat unique about that. And yep. so I'm curious about sort of pop the hood for me on the two components of this and why you did both and what it means for you in terms of what you do now that you can do both or the, you know, sort of explain all that to me. Well, you know, obviously design is subjective and it's an opinion. Um, I'd like to think that the designs we do leave an impact and, uh, and, and the audience experience is positive. I, I, I would say that that's fairly accurate. I'm still here doing it. We're still in business. So I'm going to use that as the barometer to kind of gauge um, our success. Uh, but as a programmer, I think it offers another level of understanding when delivering a design, right? Because I know how the fixtures operate. I know what they do. I know what their features are. I know what it takes to program them. So if I hang them in some kind of obscure method with, with some obscure method and they're hung sideways, and then you know they're following these squiggly lines, which maybe looks really cool on paper as like a graphic designer. But then as a programmer, you get in, you start trying to focus them, and they just you know everything looks mangled and crooked, and you have to fight every light to just kind of get it into position. Well, that sucks, and that happens, I'd say, more often with designers who have never sat in front of house and have had to dial in a show, and I think. From our perspective, one of the benefits, um, at least for me and even the guys in my office have all been behind the console, is there's a more fluid understanding of what it takes to deliver a design that can be programmed efficiently, especially when you have to deliver it to guest LDs that maybe only have an hour or two hours to program. I want them to be able to have a good experience also. And if they have to struggle with focusing a rig because the lights are all hung, you know, weird, uh, that sucks. They're not going to get, they're not, you're not going to get their best effort. You're not going to get their best show. While it might look good in your rendering and your picture, when it comes time to actually delivering the show, you'll notice there's probably not a lot of good pictures of lighting, maybe just video. Uh, and then you'll see a lot of videos of things moving because you can always kind of like pull the wool over somebody's eyes if you just keep it all wiggling and chasing. But when you stop it and you look for the big look, what I maybe call like the hand of God, like the big, clean, over the crowd, like beautiful, you know, symmetrical, non-crissy, crossy bullshit. Um, you're not going to get those out of those out, out of those designs. So that's where I think there's a lot of benefit to having front of house experience as the designer as well. So when I'm designing it, I understand how what like what these lights are going to do and how I'm going to focus them and how I'm going to program them. 
So I come into the design understanding that as well. So, and which place did you start in, Steve? It was kind of a hybrid, you know, like when I got out of college, because I don't consider anything prior to college as professional experience, it was just experience. So after college, when I was actually getting, you know, I had gainful employment, you know, although it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of compensation for the, for the work I put in. Um, I knew I wanted to design. Um, so I was running lights in nightclubs and doing programming for, for clubs and shows in New York City. And um, there was little clubs popping up and I was, I knew how I wanted to lay the fixtures out because I was starting to program. Uh, no expert by any means, um, but I understood what it took, you know, the different chases and the different looks I wanted to do. So they kind of happened concurrently, these two, these two developments, because back then, like the festival scene for dance music, uh, it didn't really exist. Yeah. And for the production side of it, it was really something that was, you know, in its infant stages. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't really any designers putting anything together. Uh, typically, if you were putting on a dance music show, chances are it was probably an illegal show in a warehouse or in a field somewhere. And and even if it was legit, you were calling a production company and going, "Hey, I got five grand. I got ten grand." and just bring down some lights and they didn't even really pay any attention to what it was. And they just set a bunch of stuff up. I kind of, I wouldn't say that I was the first one, but I was just the first one that I knew of where I was like, I don't like this method and I'm going to lay it out. So um, there was a transition period where I actually owned a bunch of equipment and I was still doing design work, you know, through CAD drawings and things like that of laying it out. And then we moved into just being designers and programmers. I was always a programmer. Um, designers working specifically for promoters and uh, show producers, and then delivering designs to vendors and saying, "Hey, you don't. You just. We we want you just to put this stuff together." So, I'm did just, that answer the question, or did I dance? Around? No, I think it does, and I'm. It's fascinating because as you're talking, I'm sort of jotting notes on. Okay, what skills? does Steve need to have to be Steve? So you got to be a technologist. So you're kind of a technology gadget, software geek of some kind, right? Absolutely. You got to know a lot of shit about how lights work and light bulbs and electricity and shit, right? So you're like a pseudo electrical dude. Yeah. You got to have some I don't know if you'd call it, I call it construction-like skills because you're climbing around, hanging this shit up, but you're on ladders yep. and scaffolding and all that shit, right? Engineering, architecture, mathematician. Yes, this is design, where I'm going. Uh, design, creativity. So it's a little left and a little right brain, um, a little bit of OCD mixed in there. Yeah. Uh, because the devil, the devil's in the details, uh, you know. Unfortunately, I start sounding like my father because he's the master. <laughs> he's the master of cliches. So I've got a million of them in my pocket, ready to go. But really, when it comes down to these kind of environments, uh, these details uh, are everything. Well, and so, the interesting thing. Let me see if I can tease this out, or and if I if you don't think about it this way, tell me how you think about it. But you're not necessarily having to be a master of any of those ones. There may be certain skills that you need to be deeper on than others. Um, but you need to be pretty good at a lot of things. And when you put all those things together, ta-da, you, you can call yourself a lighting designer. Well, you know, 
I've had That's this conversation. Fair. How do you think about it? Well, I've had this conversation a few times over the past couple of months where the unfortunate circumstance of, of being a lighting designer is you don't need to go to school for it. Any schmuck can call themselves a lighting or production designer. Um, it's not like calling yourself a doctor where all of a sudden um, there's like legal ramifications and you'll get sued or go to jail for it. Um, you can call yourself a lighting designer, production designer, and uh, you don't need to be qualified, unfortunately, to call yourself that. To actually be able to do it, I would say, um, while you're right, you do need to have a lot of skills, you know, at least at an above average level. I would say um, two things uh, in my world that need to be masterful are design procedures and programming operating. So those two things need to be at the highest level, right? They need to be expert, like Jedi level right? The other things are support. So am I an architect by trade? No, uh, but I've wor I work with architects because we also design and build nightclubs. Um, but I work with architects every single day of my life. Um, am I an engineer? No, but I'm smart enough to be dangerous. And I know that when I deliver information to an engineer for an engineering report or something to get stamped, that I've given them something that they can work with and they don't come back and go, Steve, they go, really? Uh, you're so far off the mark that this is a redo. You know, there might be some updates. Hey, we need you to move this here. We need to move this there. You're a little overweight here. You're a little overweight there. But generally, your procedures are correct. You know, that's where kind of the general knowledge of multiple trades is critical. But you obviously, you know, short of being Rembrandt, you know, like, you know, uh, you're not going to be, you know, you're not going to have a PhD in all of these items. But you do need to have the highest level of probably two, and then all of the support to come underneath. Got it. Makes total sense. I'm curious as well, because I'm ignorant of your category, your niche, your world, um, roughly how many uh, people like you, firms like yours, are there in the United States that sort of play at your level? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure if you were to poll the industry, um, a lot of people would raise their hand. Um, at the same time, I would say um, there's a lot of independent operators out there, you know, that, you know, right now I'm in my home office, although I haven't operated out of this office in you know, probably six years. You know, my office is about three miles and the guys are working. They keep, keep texting me. Uh, we'll get to them eventually. Um, but there's a lot of independent people that are skillful. Um, but as far as firms that are operating, I would say in the United States in the dance music world, I don't really know of another firm that, that specializes in exactly what we do because we are like so entrenched in dance music culture and not just dance music culture, nightclub and dance music culture that they feed into each other. And we're in a very unique position because, because I've worked in nightclubs since 1987. So all of the guys that are like, you know, all, all the men and women that are successful current operators in the United States, chances are we came up through the industry together. We're all roughly the same age. We probably all, we've crossed paths or we work together now or have in the past. And, you know, there's a circle of us, you know, um, there's an inner circle, there's a, you know, next level, next yep. level, next level. We all know each other or know of each other. So makes sense. Yeah. So, so there's that as far as like, you know, other people doing it, you know, 
that nobody's doing it the same way we're doing it. Just like, you know, some of these other firms, nobody's doing it the exact way they're doing it. So, so how would you describe your niche, Steve? Um, I would qualify us as, well, we definitely specialize in dance music environments. Um, and that's strictly because of personal preference. I just, I really, I've just always been like a club enthusiast. You know, I wouldn't say I was a club kid. I was a club enthusiast. I've always been fascinated by nightlife and nightlife culture. And the kind of the laboratory environment and experiential and experimental environment of what clubs are. And that evolved into the festival world. Whereas like back in the day when I started doing this, working in nightclubs and working in festivals was really frowned upon in the professional world. Really like we're the dogs of the industry and the clients to the dogs of the industry. And, you know, you're an idiot. And why do you do this? And now all of a sudden we've got the attention of everyone else, the rock and rollers and the corporate guys are going, you know, who were talking shit before are now all of a sudden going, how do we get involved? You know, this is so fucking What caused cool. that change? And I go, and I go from- give me a break, dude. <laughs> what, what caused that change to happen where you've gone from being the dogs to being the, the mayors? Uh, the popularity of the music has, has, has grabbed the, yeah. the industry and has grabbed the audience. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know, I, I think some of the people in the industry have, you know, whilst they might enjoy it now, maybe got in for different reasons, you know, maybe financial reasons or just all of a sudden seeing as different opportunities. Whereas I've always been here because it's something that I've been passionate about and love, you know, whether we have a million people at a show or a hundred people at a show, I still like this music. It's still programmed in my car, you Mm. know, like, you know, station one is studio 54. I think, uh, station two is Elvis station three might be, uh, Willie's roadhouse. And then station four might be, uh, it's probably BPM or something like that. So, you know, we run the gamut, but it starts with disco I cover a little Elvis and a little bit of country and then we get into the dance music also, but it's, it's all there. <laughs> I love it. Now, the other thing that I find fascinating about you, Steve is of course you're massively creative. You're you. massively technical and detail oriented. And often people think of those two things as um, not super connected, but of course they are engineers are some of the most creative people in the world. And of course you're an entrepreneur. You run a very real no shit business. How, how many uh, folks do you employ, Steve? Uh, well, there's five of us. My wife and I are business partners. Yeah. Um, she handles like human resources, attorneys, accountants, you know, the, she's kind of like the house mom. Yep. And then I do all things business related, um, uh, handle the employees, you know, uh, project management. I, you know, my name's on the door. So design details, uh, everything. I touch everything. All my guys are designers. So I give everyone the latitude to spread their wings and I encourage them to design. I tell them, put your designer hat on, like, let's do something. It's not just me here. Like we're all, we're all a family here. Yep. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we also like, we build some, some big nightclubs. So things get, you know, we're busy on so many different aspects of the industry that I think, while it's overwhelming, it's in, it's an enjoyable procedure. Like even when we're slammed, we're doing stuff that you know that I only dreamed of when I was younger. Like we're building big nightclubs and we're doing shows and we're building small nightclubs and doing small shows. But that we're doing stuff, we're doing cool stuff with cool people and collaborating with other designers and creatives 
And whilst running a business based on creative is fucking exhausting, <laughs> um, it's very fulfilling. And as an artist and as a creative person and an entrepreneur and a businessman, um, it feels good to leave a legacy of something positive for others to experience, to be a part of, to just maybe just to see it or experience it or whatever that may be. And I think that's important. And we really enjoy that part of the procedure and really being able to deliver something that has some sort of legacy that, you know, like a nightclub has a legacy that could last 10, 20 years. And a show has a legacy of, you know, three days and hope you took some good pictures, you know, but whatever it may be. Maybe it lives forever as a couple of Instagrams. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Maybe it's on YouTube somewhere and it's, or it's inspired somebody else to do something cool. And, you know, we just like being part of the, you know, of the creative world. And so, yeah, I guess that's my other big question is, uh, you have designed a life and a career and a business for yourself and with your wife. And I think you're a great example, Steve, of, of, of what I would describe as life design. And the other way I describe it is I got to believe there's no class you can take to, to be Steve, right? No, I don't think so. I think you're an example. You tell me of somebody who there are people who I, who who you could describe as finding their place in the world. And then there's people who, who you can describe as making their place in the world. And it sounds like you made a place for yourself and designed your life and business in a very sort of specific way that is pretty particular. I would call it very different. I would say it's probably a combination of those two things because um, obviously life has its own trajectory and path of how things go. And sometimes you get bumped and you move with the bump and sometimes you get bumped and you crash into it multiple times and you go through it. Right. And it just depends on what the vibe is for that situation. So I don't know that there's a uh, kind of a definitive response or answer to that statement. Um, but, but you're correct on both points. And yes, you know, me being just a stubborn ass man, um, I want things the way I want them. And I do my best to get it that way whilst trying to be a good person and do good things and kind of leave a, you know, a positive, positive mark and wake behind me of, of, whatever I can deliver without fucking things up too much along the way. <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Right. Brother. right. I, I'm trying, you know, listen, I'm human. So I have definitely, you know, hit a few speed bumps here and there, but you know, uh, I try not to do the same mistake twice. Yeah, exactly. Anything else you want to touch on before we kick out, Steve? No. Uh, I mean, I, I think you've covered uh, most of it. It was really uh, unique questions and it was a unique perspective. So I appreciate that. Uh, it was cool. Um, most of the questions you ask, I've, I've not been asked before. Some of the technical stuff, you know, I get asked the technical stuff. But as far as perspective on life and, and design philosophies, you know, not a lot of people touch on that. So it's cool. And, uh, you know, just as far as like the industry is concerned, I have a lot of respect for this industry and those who are in it. And whether they're young, old, somewhere in the middle or trying to get into it, um, I support that. And I support, you know, I, I don't look at this as like secretive information that I'm keeping to myself. I'm always trying to kind of put information out there if I can help. If I need help, because God knows none of us know everything, 
um, if I need help, I have no issue making a phone call and calling colleagues or friends, whether they have a year or a day in the industry or they got 30 years in the industry. Everyone has something to offer. And if you want to be in this business, if you're in this business, um, I respect you. I consider you part of the family. Um, and, and I support what everybody's doing out there. Again, it's, it's artwork and you're expressing yourself creatively. So it's subjective. Not everybody's going to love it. We're going to have an opinion. Uh, but I would say at the end of the day, uh, if you can put yourself out and be just, you know, positive minded and focused, uh, you can really do a lot of amazing shit. The stuff that goes south are the people who, who lose that perspective and they get sidetracked maybe by something that's should be left in the past or they're distracted by what other people are doing. So um, I would say closing thoughts are put your energy towards what's in front of you and the positive stuff you do and don't focus on the negative shit and you're going to find success is really going to, is going to start increasing and the work that you do, the level of what you do and the appreciation of the audience and people that experience it is going to grow exponentially. Well, that's a great place to end, Steve. You're awesome. I love your Thanks, work. Christopher. Um, Thanks, Christopher. And it's really been fun hanging out, getting to know you. And uh, I'd love to have you back somewhere down the line. Yeah, I, I would really appreciate that. This was a great conversation. I'm going to put one more little side note that I'm excited about today because you'd mentioned a couple shows that you'd seen. Yeah. I'm actually going to see Profits of Rage tonight at the Mayan, and I'm taking my daughter. And uh, that's um, a combination of Rage Against the Machine and Public Enemy and Be Real from Cypress Hill. And again, like, all like artist collaboration. Like I, I love going to see other people's stuff. So this musically, visually, like I'm, I like going to see other people's work as well. And that's something that's on my agenda for this evening. And like, even my daughter, this, and I, this morning, we were like looking at each other. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to go get some of that tonight and, you know, feed your creative spirit, feed your creative appetite. And it's not just all about what you as the designer are doing, go experience other people's work and designs and just kind of open up your eyes to the bigger picture. So I'm going to go get some of that myself tonight and I can't wait and I can't wait to see that show. I've got nothing to do with the show short of excited to go check it out. Just be a fan and be a dad. Hell yes. Yeah. It's a rage. Me and my kid. Awesome. Outstanding. Steve, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Christopher. Well, there he is, the legendary Steve Lieberman. I sure hope you enjoyed uh, that conversation. And if you did, you might like to check out episode 54 of Follow Your Different with America's one of America's top DJs, none other than the legendary Claude Von Stroke. That's episode 54 of Follow Your Different at Lockhead.com, uh, Apple Podcasts, um, or wherever else you get legendary podcasts. And if you want to email us, by all means, send an email to blackhole at lockhead.com. Um, and you can follow me on LinkedIn, um, Christopher Lockhead, Twitter, and Instagram. You can check out my week social media game. <laughs> I really do suck <laughs> at Lockhead. All right. We would like to thank the creative, the legendary Steve Lieberman, our guest today. What an awesome guy. Uh, you can check him out on the internet at sjlighting.net. That's sjlighting.net. My friends at Socrates, the leading digital conversation hub, they want to help you make your company employee awesome. 
Imagine being able to talk or text any HR-related question and getting an answer back immediately. That's Socrates, and that's Employee Awesome. Check them out at S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I today. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help scale you. Why not check out the power of a virtual assistant today at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. My friends at Atranet have been building B2B enterprise websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And uh, One Life Fully Lived, this is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And I'll tell you, if you're looking for a charity to um, maybe make a contribution to, I really hope you check out the number one, lifefullylived.org, because these folks make a giant difference in helping people uh, design a powerful new life, and they do a tremendous amount of work with young people and in the inner city around the United States. Check them out, onelifefullylived.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's uh, Oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. Um, also check out if you're in marketing check out Lockhead on marketing speaking of oddcasts in the network um, we also um, have to tell you that this oddcast is clearly created a studio that does contain nuts <laughs> remember to teach peace listen to Pearl Jam uh, remember the sage words of Richard Bach who said what the caterpillar calls the end of the world a master calls a butterfly Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Martin Scarelli, founder and CEO of Turning Pharmaceuticals. Sorry, Marty, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. I want you to know I deeply appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Um, thank you so much. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, bless you. And of course, follow your difference.